Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on this side. Welcome to the program, another Monday morning. <sighs> and we passed the Ides of March. We were just talking about what does one do to celebrate the Ides of March? You could stab someone in the back, figuratively. Figuratively. You don't want to do it. Literally. You could have a, an increased sense of uh, awareness or beware yeah. of something you, negative may you, happen. Yeah, you could be anxious and, and neurotic looking over your shoulder so as not to be stabbed in the back. It's the 16th. We forgot to say last Friday. It was Friday the 13th. Well, that's probably good. If you point it out, usually that's when you lead to I went a to a things. wedding on Friday the 13th. Would How'd that you, go? Would you get married on Friday the 13th? No. I wouldn't either. My parents got married on Friday the thirteenth. I know, but James, look, look what, look how it turned out. I know. Case in point. <laughs> James, what's your wedding date? May second. May second. Yes, it's a very lucky day. Is it? Why now? I'm pretty sure back in Gaelic tradition uh, that people <laughs> many many moons ago. Yeah, exactly. That there was a lucky time of the year. May second. I think wasn't that the bloody massacre, the Gaelic bloody massacre. Where well, thousands of people died on May 2nd. No, no. I don't think that was it. There's a, there's a, a long <laughs> string of human history, so you could probably say there's something like that happen on almost every day of the year. That's true. At some point in history, there probably was some sort of massacre on May 2nd. The May 2nd massacre. Uh, I was born on May 8th, if that has any consolation. That does. And do you know what the na- do you know what the word Matthew means? I don't I mean I don't want to brag, but uh, gift from God. <laughs> Do you know what the name Terry or my given name Terrell means? Terrell means, hey, get the dog out. Thor, God of Thunder. What? Really? <laughs> yeah, so topper. Wow. I win. Dang. Mine stinks. What's yours? What does James mean? James means supplanter. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those names. So I'm a superhero. Okay. We'll call me just Gift of God. We'll call James Supplanter, and we'll call you Thor. There you go. I'm the replacement. I got a hammer. You are the replacement. Yeah. Thor and the replacement. (laughs) (laughs) How fitting. Speaking of replacements. Yeah. People were wondering if Russia needed a replacement president the last 11 days. Putin has been missing. He usually makes a public appearance every single day. Putin and he's went, been just you know, gone. Well, I'm sure he just was lifting weights. There's rumors that he had that back surgery. Ah, uh, so yeah, they don't want a picture of There's that. There's rumors that he was visiting his mistress or whatever in Italy. Uh huh. There's rumors that uh, he just took a couple days off, which doesn't really feed into his machoism of I'm no. tough and I don't need to take time off. Well, can a guy not just have a break? Can a guy? Can a can a dictator not a dictator? There were rumors from a, a sneaky coup to gossip of of you know all this other stuff, but uh, he's supposed to meet with some uh, foreign dignitaries today. So we'll so is he? We'll see if he shows. Apparently, he's already shown. Oh, is he? Okay, since it's midday in Russia, maybe he's, he's with already. Castro. Could have been. 
You know, you didn't see that guy for months. The, the U.S. is we're trying to get cozy with Castro and Cuba a little bit, and the, the, we're imposing upon Russian territory. You know what? If if I were president, I would do the same thing. I just disappear for a month. <laughs> just go away. Yeah, you come back with like a major facelift. <laughs> what? It was always the same. I would I would check the pictures of it. There is rumors that he gets Botox. Oh sure, his face is puffier in some days than you others. You don't and... you don't get a face like that. And a body like that, if you're not injecting something. I mean, hypothetically. Lots of email news over the weekend. What, a more? A not Top Republicans, as predicted by everyone, but uh, confirmed, I guess, by ABC's This Week. Uh, top Republicans will launch an investigation into the Clinton emails separate from the Benghazi <sighs> investigation that will reopen dealing with her email. So there'll be two different email yeah. situations. It seems like a bilateral email attack. Jeb Bush was found that when he was governor of Florida, he used his private email account to discuss security and military issues while in office. This was according to a Washington Post. What military issues does Florida have? Uh, it was issues uh, discussed Florida National Guard deployments after 9-11, okay. troop deployments to the Middle East, and the protection of uh, nuclear plants in the state. Okay. So he was doing that on his. Hey, okay. So we now know Bush and Clinton, uh, you know, the, both have email issues. The State Department had a uh, had to shut down parts of their email system because they were uh, found a bunch of malware believed to be have inserted by Russian hackers. Well, that's where Putin was. <laughs> yeah, he's just looking through the email that they pulled down. Putin also is a hack. Uh, this they dubbed this the worst ever hack of the State Department. It also believed to have hit the White House and other agencies. So that oh, was going on. Also, this came out I found was funny that the Office of Inspector General issued a report saying many many at the State Department did not properly preserve emails for record keeping purposes. Of one billion emails sent by employees in 2011, only 61,000 were marked for public record, which means they were saved. That works out to a point zero 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 six percent of total emails that were saved. <laughs> so and nothing. And everyone's uptight about Clinton. Yes. And yet. Hardly any emails were saved. What is the deal? No one's saving emails, apparently. I don't save emails. Mine all go to junk mail. Hey, by the way, you guys, I don't know why yours keep going to junk mail. They they constantly do. Maybe I, title it Thor, King of... <laughs> will that do it? The Wild Frontier. King of the Wild Frontier. Well, that's Davy Crockett. Yeah, it's a different thing. Different than Thor. Uh, over the weekend, uh, a suspect was arrested in connection with the shooting of two Ferguson police yeah. officers. That's yeah. good police. A handgun right and show casings that match those at the scene had also been recovered. Police identified the suspect as 20-year-old Jeffrey oh. Williams. He acknowledged his participation in the in the shooting. He, the police stressed that he may not have intended to shoot at officers, but may have had a dispute with other people in the area and could have been firing at them. Okay, I didn't mean to hit the cop. Okay, I was trying to hit two other guys. Hit the cops. 20 years old. I mean, look at that. That's young. Life in prison if, if he's uh, charged with both. Oh, man. That's sad. Have you heard about Robert Durst? Yeah. <laughs> New York uh, real estate. Oh, see. Heir to a fortune or Billions baron or whatever. He's, he's a big deal in real estate. estate. Yeah. He was arrested in New Orleans on a murder warrant issued by Los Angeles County. He has been implicated in three murders. Wow. The, the warrant is for one. They, they There's one that happened in 1982, one in 2000, and one since then. Mm-hmm. And... They, Strange. They can't make anything stick, but now they have some evidence or possibly because of a, uh, what, a six-part HBO documentary series called The Jinx, The Life and Death of uh, Robert Durst. 
It uh, it aired on HBO. I wasn't I wasn't able to find out if it was finishing or starting, but it was on HBO. And in uh, part of the documentary, Durst whispers to himself in a moment, picked up on microphone, apparently admitting to his involvement in the crime. He went to the restroom and was mic'd up, and I guess was mumbling to himself. <laughs> Is that what happened? <laughs> and so, but it is the creepiest audio. It's bad. And yet his attorneys are like, no, no, you should not go on this. Don't go on HBO. Don't do this show because you're free. You're free from all of these cases. You could just say something, though, that might create a problem. And he did. <laughs> and he did in the restroom. But I've done that. I've actually worn a microphone to the restroom after speaking. Well, you, uh, yeah. I've seen it on like CNN. I they had one that their one of their anchors had, yeah. was mic'd up, and then she runs off to the restroom. Yeah, and she was standing there looking at her hair, or whatever. But she's mumbling about her brother-in-law on <laughs> national TV and how how much of a jerk he is. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So that was pretty funny. That is hilarious. But she she's not going to be indicted in a crime now. No, but that's why this is intriguing. Is because will is this admissible? <sighs> well, sure. I think that's what you learn being around microphones a lot is always make sure they're off, A, B, don't ever say anything you wouldn't say in front of their face or if you were standing in the restroom next to them. Also, uh, of course, the NCAA tournament. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Seedings were announced. Mm -hmm. Undefeated Kentucky, top seed. Also, uh, UCLA, Texas, Duke, Villanova, Wisconsin, a bunch of other teams make it. But some are like UCLA? Yeah. Come on. They struggled throughout the season, but somehow they made it. Yeah. This is good news. BYU. BYU makes an 11 seed in a play-in game. Dayton, Ohio. They play Ole Miss tomorrow. And how's that going to go? Uh, yes. We'll have to ask the guys at BYU Sports yeah. Nation. Ask later. Later in the show. Oh, that's good. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Over 40 million Americans will gamble more than $2 billion on the NCAA tournament. boy. But it's fine. Don't worry about Just- it. It's just a little fun wagering. Not a gambling issue. We're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, our political insider, Washington, D.C. insider Joe Cannon will be joining us. we got a lot, a lot to just discuss from uh, the Iran letter to, you know, what's going on with uh, Clinton and Bush. Are they still neck and neck? Anyway, and just uh, the lack of trust Americans have in our political system and Congress. We'll take a break. When we come back, Joe Cannon is here on the phone, actually, with us right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, you know, uh, there's always stories going on in Washington, D.C., and many times we don't quite understand the political uh, infighting, maybe, or or just positioning that, that it's going on. So we like to bring in uh, the person we call our, our political insider. He never believes he really is. Joe Cannon is joining us. Joe was uh, once the chairman of the Utah Republican Party from 2002 to 2006 and also was the editor of the Deseret News, which is kind of a um, a, a um, Intermountain uh, newspaper. 
and uh, is really just just very well informed. Also, is the current CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, and likes to be willing to actually. I don't know if he likes to, but is willing to come on with us every week to uh, to just talk about what's going on back in D.C. Joe Cannon, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt, thanks a lot. I'm happy and willing. Oh, good. I was like, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Where, where are you traveling today, Joe? Actually, back to Washington, D.C. Oh, lucky. Well, you got fun meetings back there? Uh, I laugh. Yeah, so, yeah, I have have some good meetings back there. Good. Yeah, yeah. Hey, okay, here we go. For the lineup, I need to know about this Iran letter, right? So 47 senators sign a letter to Iran. That uh, seems like it's kind of upset a lot of people. What's, I mean, is that unprecedented? I know the Democrats are making a really big deal about it. I mean, the, the Democrats or the president is in dis- discussions right now, along with four or five other countries, to try to stop the nuclear development um, uh, going, that's going on in Iran. Is this a big deal? Well, yeah, it's the letter a big deal. The letter's a big deal because it clearly puts on the record uh, 47 senators who uh, may end up having to vote on what agreement comes out. So I think the president's trying to work some deal that doesn't involve uh, submitting the plan to Congress. But I think... Uh, they wanted to know. They, the Congress, wanted uh, the. I think the administration and the the folks in Iran to know that. Uh, they, I, I think they were really trying to keep the pressure on. Now, whether it was a good idea to send a letter or not, don't don't really know. I mean, I I don't know. Um, I, I don't know why a letter was necessary. I think that these sentiments are pretty well known mm-hmm. on on both sides. On the on the other hand. Uh, one of the things Tom Cotton said, I guess, over the weekend was, look, they must really be nervous about this letter. Maybe they are negotiating something that uh, isn't going to be so good for what at least those Congress uh, senators hmm. think is in the uh, U.S. interest. So it's a, it's a lot of posting up. It's actually, I don't know, maybe maybe a letter with 47 signatures on it is unprecedented, but there are many examples over time on both, both Republicans and Democrats of quote, interfering, close quote, with, right. uh, with things, uh, you know, the foreign uh, policy making by the president. Uh, in fact, in April of 2007, Nancy Pelosi, who was then Speaker of the House, met at the presidential palace in Damascus with President Bashar al-Assad of Syria against the wishes of President Bush. So this has gone on back and forth. Um, I mean, I guess part of the deal is it, it, it to me just shows how disconnected our Congress and our president are. Right. I mean, because we're also well, dealing yeah. with Russia and China. They're also all involved in this negotiation. Yeah, no, no question. The, the cleavage between the administration and the Republicans on the Hill is very wide and very deep. I would just put one comment in. Uh, it's one thing just to have regular political discourse, like, gee, that was really a bad idea, or mm-hmm. that was wrong. When you start calling people like Tom Cotton and 46 other people traitors, yeah. that, that, that rhetoric is, uh, is way over the top. Well, and in fact, and, and I mean, the, the, I don't know if you heard the disrespect uh, from Secretary of State Kerry when he basically said, a senator that's only been in there 66 days is the one that led this this charge. I mean, 
it's like in a way you maybe you bring up a good point what's i mean it's what's the big deal if it's it's just a letter but for some reason it must be tipping over or at least impacting that discussion no it, it hit an incredibly sensitive nerve no question about it hmm. um but, you know, it points out what you mentioned already, that there's this very deep divide um, between the administration and the Republicans. This goes. This seems to go hand in hand with some new polls that are out that show how Americans, how few actually believe in the government. I don't know if you saw this, but an NBC Wall Street Journal poll says that 89 percent of people believe that the president and the Congress want to stick to their partisan positions instead of working together. And that includes 90 percent of Republican respondents, 89 percent of Democrats, 85 percent of independents. So. You know, we don't seem to believe that our politicians want to find solutions that aren't partisan. What's where do we go from here? Well, it's a tough question, because if you ask probably those same respondents, you know, how how would they do it differently? And, yeah. and the answer is the the leaders in both parties generally reflect uh, the, their constituents who put them there. I mean, there are just some very deep ideological and, and uh, philosophical divides in the country, and a lot of what you see in Washington uh, it manifests that. On, on the other hand, it, it just seems to me, somebody's going to watch this for a long time, that uh, it's worse now than it's ever been in my memory. It just seems... Uh, you know, just black and white, no matter how you, how, how you look at it, every issue, if somebody, you know, there's this just big divide on, on both sides and not a lot of willingness to come in and uh, negotiate. Now, there could be a lot of trust issues on both sides, right? too. You know, to, to be fair, it's not like the president actually has ever indicated a big willingness to sit down and do something different. I mean, his view of it is, seems to me that, well, and negotiating means you come and do what I want. And yeah. uh, the, so the senators on the other side say, well, okay, if that's what, really what we're going to get, then what is the principle that we're supposed to uh, cave in on, on our side, to get what on the other side? So, I mean, the, the, you've got, it's, it's probably in this particular case, a case of personalities, mm-hmm. but, but amplified by the philosophical and ideological divide in, in the country as a whole. Do you sense, um, like, go back to Bill Clinton for a bit. Was was he, did we have this divide then? I mean, I mean, I know it was created with a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of investigations of Bill Clinton and all of that. But are we basically just talking about a few personalities, maybe a Boehner, uh, an Obama, a McConnell, that the personalities don't work well together, or is it just somebody you just need a personality like a Bill Clinton that's you know more willing to talk? Well, I mean, there's no question. Bill Clinton is it was and is a uh, a political genius. What what ha- what happened to him is once when he lost the, the House and the Senate, he lost for, in, you know two years after his election. He thought, okay, I guess I can, well, I don't know what totally went out of his mind, but uh, what came out was, okay, you know what, I'm going to have to work with these folks. Let's sit down and figure out what we could do. Hmm. I doubt very much that Bill Clinton would have ever come up with the idea 
of welfare reform or balancing the budget, um, both of which happened in his, his administration, because facing the reality of, of a Republican Congress, and, and again, this ideological divide, they still came together. And, you know, you're talking about Bill Clinton, you're talking about Duke Gingrich, some very strong yeah. personalities, uh, but they came together and did some pretty amazing things. And, and to this day, Bill Clinton gets credit for balancing the budget. And, uh, you know, that was a good thing for him, and it was a good thing for the country. And it clearly showed uh, on, on, on an issue that's very divisive in Washington that people from pretty, very different perspectives could get together. Part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that Bill Clinton was a governor. Yeah. Uh, and in a governor, he had to, to negotiate and navigate the state legislature and work with other people and, and basically make deals. And President Obama, in, in a very similar circumstances, losing the uh, Congress, uh, basically decided to double down on his own agenda and just go forward. And in his case, saying, I'm just going to do as much as I can uh, with the power I have in the executive branch. And uh, that seems to be the outline of where he he wants to go. Yeah. Now, there are still things that they can compromise on, and I think they will compromise on some things. For you still have to have a budget. A lot of things sort of force the, the negotiations. And, uh, you know, on the, on the president's hand, speaking for President Obama, you could say that, wow, uh, how much trust should he have when basically – uh, the, the the position of the Republicans in Congress is we want this guy to fail. Yeah, true. Uh, from, from from the get go, we we want this guy to fail. So it's not it's 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 two way street. I, I worked for a wonderful judge, Judge Alden Anderson. Some listeners may know him, but uh, he once said it's a mighty thin pancake that doesn't <laughs> have two sides. It's true. It's true. Yeah, I mean, and, and I guess that's the key is, is figuring out how to bridge those two sides. Let's take a break. We are talking with our insider, Washington insider, Joe Cannon. When we come back, we're going to continue the discussion, maybe get into a little bit uh, more about, uh, you know, the Clinton-Bush potential play and, and how that's already playing out in politics right now. Also wanted to talk to him about the Secret Service. Can you really go into a government entity and rebuild it? Man, I also want to know what is on Joe's mind. What is he thinking about when it comes to politics? We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Little Bob Dylan for you in the morning. <laughs> the times they are changing. Hey, uh, joining us is Joe Cannon. Joe is our Washington insider, chairman, uh, past chairman of the Utah Republican Party many, many years ago, CEO of Fuel Freedom Foundation, and uh, at one time was a U.S. Uh, candidate for U.S. Senate, and not not an easy deal. Also worked in the EPA uh, as an assistant administrator um, in from 83 to 85, also was the editor of the Deseret News. Um, and so he's kind of touched them all. For that reason, we've, we've call, we call him our Washington insider. Joe Cannon, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Matt. Thanks you a bet. lot. You bet. Talk I mean, look, oh. you, you can't have too much Bob Dylan, but let me suggest <laughs> from, his, 
from his uh, his record, Oh Mercy, uh, living in a political world and everything is broken. <laughs> you should listen to those. We two. should listen. Yeah. Everything is broken. I'm writing these down. Um, next, 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 next time I'm in the studio, I'll, I'll play them for you. Yeah, let's do it. Are they just on your iPhone? That's great. They are. They, they are on my iPhone. Yeah. Is that what you listen to when you're flying to DC? Well, I listen to a lot of things. <laughs> I, I'm also a huge consumer of string quartet music. I so. get you. <laughs> You play. You play all of. See, that's that's what makes you so eclectic. Hey, uh, Joe, talk to us about um, again just all of the news with Hillary Clinton and she, you know her discussion last uh, week about her emails. Do you feel like the emails? Is it a real story? I mean, um, a lot of people are like, "Well, yeah, she violated some of the rules," but then we've also just heard a news story today that the reality is very few of the government emails are even being tracked anyway, like less than 1% of all of the emails are being tracked and saved anyway. So are we just, is it just a conjured up story? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really think it's a conjured up story. For one thing, it started out uh, in the uh, New York times and then was carried very widely by, by lots of other press outlets. And, and it, it you know, <laughs> I don't want to come across as too partisan on this, but I was well, I watched the whole press conference, mm-hmm. and and I was just talking actually with one of my very liberal Democrat friends who said, you know, uh, I just shut my eyes and I felt like I was back in the nineties. <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah. And you know, now we're hearing Jeb Bush did this. We're hearing that the State yeah. Department people don't turn their emails. All of this is okay. So trying to make it seem fine, but just imagine it wasn't. Uh, Hillary Clinton. It was just some other person, some other Secretary of State, or in particular, Republican Secretary of State, who not only didn't turn the emails over for a year, a couple of years, but yeah. turned over hard copies, uh-huh. 5,000 pages of hard copy. Now, the whole idea is to turn your your electronic stuff over. And think of all the Freedom of Information Act requests. But I, I think it's also a big story that the State Department has such, you know, few record of these emails. I mean, mm-hmm. when you're a public servant, they are, there's a presumption that you're doing the public's business and that the public should be aware of that or have the ability to be aware of that. So clearly, if they're not capturing the emails, they're, they're, there's a lot of information out there that's not available, uh, including to congressional investigators. Mm. Well, and especially now with other information about the, the Clinton Foundation and out-of-country, you know, uh, donations. And, I mean, it's just it's just weird. It just doesn't smell right. In fact, but but in the end, um, she's still the, pretty much the, the single candidate. In fact, Paul Begala, one of her past uh, advisors, said something um, this recently on his blog that he really personally wishes she had a tough primary challenge to face. He thinks it would strengthen her, toughen her up a little bit to get her ready. Because she also keeps showing some mistakes politically of just not quite getting her. I mean, I, even even press a presser, that was just a really weird moment. That was a weird place to hold it uh, at the UN. I mean, it's just strange. No, 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 that's exactly right. And and uh, I, I, you know, I can't be in, in her mind, but just looking at it, if you turned the sound off and you didn't even know what the, what it was about. And you just looked at it. You know, she's either reading her notes, yeah. or looking up in the air, uh, not like like Bill. Bill could connect with people, connect with his audience. 
just in that charismatic way. And for her, it was clearly, like I say, turn the sound up, forget about what it is. Here's a woman who's experienced an incredibly painful uh, uh, process. <laughs> yeah. She didn't want to be there. You could see that. Uh, she definitely didn't engage. And I think everyone I know, uh, Democrat or Republican, just thinks that it was a disaster to have that uh, press conference. Now, the fact is, she is, she's not the presumptive candidate. She is the candidate. She's the candidate. Yeah. Uh, anybody else uh, is talking about running, and there are some people. They don't have the fund-raising no. ability. Uh, they don't have the name ID. It's just she's not going to have a tough primary. Mm. Does it? I mean, and this. I mean, interestingly, nobody wants their candidate to be uh, the joke of Saturday Night Live. I mean, she's already having you know these opportunities to be you know uh, just ripped on Saturday Night Live. So. Ah, now that's interesting because I also went through a list. I think I, I saw it. I can't even remember where I saw it. A list of 12 people vying uh, for the seat if she were ever to fall or stumble. And the reality is you most people wouldn't know the names of 80% of those people. So that that's right. the problem is you're not going to overcome name recognition and fundraising ability by anyone else. Right. I mean, you've got – you do have Elizabeth Warren. You have Martin O'Malley. But like you say uh, – uh, you also have Jim Webb. Yeah, Jim Webb seems like a great candidate. Very interesting candidate. Yeah, but for, for the reasons that many people think he's a great candidate, he, he would have an extremely tough time getting through the primary system in the Democratic would Party. He? Just like in both parties, it's the same thing. The, the extreme edges tend to control the nominating hmm. process, and the extreme edge of the Democrat Party is not going to look favorably on somebody who is the Secretary of the Navy right. in the Reagan administration. That's right. That's true. A- I mean, and a, and a highly decorated, uh, like, Vietnam vet, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Oh, fantastic. Mean, so I guess he's really considered more of a moderate Democrat. Oh, definitely. Yeah, okay. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, talk about, I'm sure you heard what happened with the Secret Service. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. oh. I mean oh, it's just one thing after another. And then... Is it possible you? I want to know because you not only you were an executive that that had to make some really tough decisions with an or, with a company that needed to pretty much be closed down, and you did it in a way that was environmentally friendly and eco sound, and yet still took care of people. And with uh, Geneva Steel, talk about what are the, what's the real ability for somebody to be appointed to the, over the Secret Service that can go in and actually change the system. Well, it's tough. I mean, it's it's the same. It's very similar to what's going on in the Veterans Administration. You, you've got a culture that has grown up over many, many years, and uh, it's just really hard for somebody to come in and change that culture. But you definitely need – there's a kind of a saying in Washington, but it's true in a lot of places. Policy is people. Uh, so in other words, yeah, you need a policy change. It can never get changed without the right personnel in place. And and the right personnel in place have to really, in the case of the Secret Service and the Veterans Administration, uh, have to be change agents and, and just tremendously committed to that change. And they've got to exhibit the behavior that demonstrates the change that they're trying to get. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a very tough problem that... You know, you think of all the movies where Secret Service are such 
heroes. Yeah. They are heroes. Yeah, they are. These are people who are willing to put their lives on the line for for the president, and they do put their lives on the line for the president. Uh, but they just seem to have this uh, <laughs> soft underbelly of, I don't know if it's because of you know, macho-ness or whatever it is. They seem to be able to think they can get away with a lot of things. Uh, on and off duty, yeah, often on duty too. Is it? Is it? Um, I mean, I know, and, and talk about it just because with your experience in the EPA. Is it? It seems like there's the appointment level where we appoint, you know, kind of a secretary or somebody over a director over an organization. But then underneath it, there's really just a bureaucratic world that's that's really the one running it, right? Right in the government, unlike private industry, people don't work for their uh, superiors. They, they don't work for the, uh, you know, administrator of EPA or for the secretary of state. It, in kind of a technical sense, they do. But all career uh, uh, folks in Washington know that they're going to be there in this administration, that administration, in and out. They just need to persist in doing what they're doing. Sometimes that's good. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good thing. It's Continuity. Like, kind of stability for the system. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it, it is true. These guys, these people, these people protect the president. And it's got to go way deep into this. It's not, it's, it, it can't just be, you're right, one person being put in charge. There, there, have to, there has to be a systematic approach to how you, uh, how you create change. And that involves more than just appointing, appointing a new director. Right. Is it, and I mean, you see that with this, the VA as well, is it, is, is it just our system is a little off? Because to the idea that you're going to appoint somebody that maybe will only be there four years or five years, maybe you need to have longer tenured people. I mean, because it seems like businesses run a lot better than a government agency. And, and what's yeah. the difference? Well, there's a huge difference. Uh, uh, businesses have to meet a bottom line or they don't exist anymore. Right. Uh, there's no bottom line for government except, in many cases, self-perpetuation. <laughs> so, True. Uh, 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 James Buchanan became a Nobel Prize winner by, by documenting the fact that public servants act around their self-interest just the way anybody else does. So that... You can't just count on the government to be virtuous, uh, uh, you know, unself-motivated people. People are people wherever they are, and they respond to incentives. And they, you don't have the incentive in government to to be efficient. You don't have that incentive. It's just not. It's not there. So you, it is a problem that's endemic to the government itself, to government bureaucracy hmm. itself. But, but then you need the department. I mean, uh, Secret Service—you you can't outsource that. I mean, that no, needs no, to no. be the—that needs to be the government, doesn't it? That is one of the functions that I, everybody would concur is a core government responsibility, which would be protecting people. Hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, that's 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 core. So that's why I think because of that, by the way, I think that that uh, there are opportunities for change. You know, it's, it's a smaller organization. Uh, you could probably get to the root of the problems there a little faster than you can in, in these very big, sprawling, you know, Department of Agriculture yeah. <laughs> kind of a thing. What, um, 
when you sit there and you look at what's going on in D.C., what's on your mind? What what do we need to talk about, Joe, that, that you just – that's keeping you up maybe? Well, it's not, it's not keeping me up, but you uh, – I, I actually think most of the interesting action this year is going to be at the, the Supreme Court uh, looking at the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and also looking at the marriage issue. I think those are two things that uh, I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Interestingly, and actually, you might want to consider having some or more of these folks on your show. Yeah. Right, this, right later today at the Brookings Institution, which is, everyone would say, a center-left think tank in Washington, but one of the venerable, really uh, important uh, think tanks is having a symposium on what happened out here in Utah yeah. during the legislature on this marriage issue. You've got the former governor, Mike Levitt, is there. Uh, you've got Paul Edwards, editor of the Deseret News, is there. You've got Ben McAdams, the Democrat, mayor mm-hmm. of Salt Lake County there. You've got others. I can't remember everybody on the list, but uh, this is a Brookings Institution look at how do we accommodate the marriage issue and religious liberty so those are, that's a very, very important uh, issue for lots of people. Well, and, and talk, about, uh, talk about the legislation that passed that was strongly supported by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to, to make sure that everybody's afforded equal rights and religious liberties. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and trying to thread that needle, this is a very, very innovative approach, and a lot of it did have to do with Mike Levitt. Uh, as I say, they're, they are... I'm, I feel really sad. I'm not going to get there in time to to hear the to hear it all. But uh, uh, Brookings is a uh, is one of the venerable think tank institutions in Washington D.C. And for them to be looking at it and highlighting the Utah example is uh, really it's a major step forward. It shows that this innovativeness, this innovative approach, is working its way into the thinking uh, at a at a pretty high level. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. We're going to try to get something on the show about that uh, within the week. Um, that, that, I mean, and, and honestly, you know, two seeming, you know, opposite views of the spectrum unifying in legislation um, to, to create, because a lot of times you might think, you know, it's it might be like uh, a really conservative religious group that is against, you know, the marriage issues and the equality of marriage and the lesbian, gay, and transgender issues. And yet they came together to create, uh, to basically take care of everybody's needs. Right. I mean, I think the LDS Church has broken incredibly interesting new ground in this whole area. And, it's, uh, and obviously, I, I, I am a Latter-day Saint, so i <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, inclined to be supportive, obviously, but the fact again that, that the Brookings Institute is looking, institution is looking at this uh, and bringing the very people out on both sides to this issue to to look at it, show the merits of what the LDS Church has done in in this really groundbreaking approach. Okay, we recognize that the law of the land is going to be. Uh, it's going to be in favor of gay marriage. Okay, so what does that mean for religious liberty? How, how do we accommodate two very strong, you know, strong views that very often would be opposed to each other? How can we work together? It'd be nice to have more of that in Washington, by the way. Right. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, it might be the kind of the ideal example of it, really. Well, we appreciate you, Joe, and uh, the great work that you're doing. We, um, again, we'll have you on next week as well, and we're going to chase down this Brookings story because I really believe uh, there's there's some powerful ideas in leadership there. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Appreciate Joe Cannon and all of his great work. Again, you can go to fuelfreedom.org and, and get more information about uh, some of the things Joe and his organization are working on. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. To the Matt Townsend Show, uh, wrapping up, hour number one. It's always fun to talk to Joe, just to find out what's going on. I, I have thought a lot about that uh, that Brookings Institution meeting. I wanted to... We're going to track that down, folks. That's a good topic. We will cover it. Hey, um, also, just the interesting bureaucracy that goes on. You would think it would be, you know, smarter maybe to have... I don't know. Just leave people, get business consultants in, treat the government more like a business entity, but then everything gets so darn politicized. I look at all of the, you know, all these, any of the um, businesses that are on the stock market, they've got to produce a result. They've got to produce. They've got to watch their numbers or somebody's head's going to roll. That's not always the case in government. And uh, which is why, you know, we try to run our sh- we, we try to run our, our ship a lot tighter. Like James, I always am getting all over James about what he's what we allow him to do and what we don't, what he what he can put on his time card and what he can't. Right. Talk about that, you know, get that massage you wanted to expense. No, I'm like, we're not in the Secret Service. But at the same time, though, that it is uh, for my well-being as an employee. Yeah. So I think that it should count. No. No, well, you would think that, but no, this is BYU radio. This isn't the government and massaging your back has nothing to do with running the board. I don't know. It can be stressful and that stress is manifested in, you know, the tightness through the shoulders. Thank you, Terry. (laughs) Being someone who's done that for quite a while. So you think he should get a massage? (sighs) That's that gray line. Yeah. Crazy. It, it really just depends on what your manager thinks they'll want to pay for. To me, there's like 20 shades of gray there. <laughs> okay. We'll just let that go. <laughs> Not 50, just 20. In other news, yeah. apparently California is almost completely out of water. Really? An op-ed piece this weekend in the, the LA Times. Beach, everything's gone. Well, there's salt water, but you can't really use it. We're talking drinking water, irrigation. Drinking water. That's scary. NASA scientist Jay Farming Letty, I think. Farming Letty? He says that California will run out of water in one year and the state should already be rationing water, but they're not. Oh, no. See, you know what that means? They're going to start going upstream. Arizona, I mean, uh, to Nevada, Utah. They're going to, we got to, you know. The use of groundwater for farming in the Central Valley has caused the land to sink by one foot a year. So they're pulling water out of the ground, and it's caused the ground in the Central Valley to drop. A foot a year. Sprinklers and other landscaping account for 70% of urban water use. 
according to the Sacramento Bee. Wow. Governor Jerry Brown declared a drought emergency at the beginning of last year, though Californians only reduced their water usage by 9% instead of the hoped-for 20%. Oh, man. The current drought in the western U.S., which is entering its fourth year, is the worst in modern American history. So. They're going to have to import water. Import? In little bottles. Perrier. (laughs) Perrier. That is sad. I mean, because this is, think of how many jobs could be lost. Think of. Now, what what the uh, the scientist is saying is, his estimates are this: they might be on the extreme side, sure. but and he's looking at it as this is a possibility, and that the state is still looking at it as we're in a state of emergency instead of crisis. So, a state of emergency is we're going to keep it status quo right now and just kind of wait for rain. Yeah, that's kind of their plan. It right doesn't now. seem to be coming. No, hmm. at least not in a a time frame that's going to help them out. Yeah. So I didn't know the ground would shrink. That's, that, that's what I found interesting is the ground has dropped by a foot in the Central Valley because they pulled the groundwater out. Well, you would think that, you know, the roads would be caving in and anyway, sinkholes or, you know, yeah. see more evidence that way. Rand Paul has a uh, foolproof strategy to win the youth vote. What? Oh, really? Snapchat. Oh, yeah. That'll do it. He's going to uh, get out on Snapchat. He told Politico, he goes, you have to have something to say to them, too. And we'll tell them that government has no business looking at their phone records. And I think they appreciate that. That's a direct quote. It's kind of all over Interesting. the place. He, uh, he says that uh, b- by allowing users to send videos, messages, automatically delete them after delivery, you know, however the, yeah. the app works. He goes, people like that. And they, it instills trust. Yeah. It's also a little creepy. You know. He is, uh, and then it says there's 200 million daily users in May. That was the last report from uh, Snapchat. It's also young. 60% of the app users are between the ages of 18 and 24. And this strategy, of course, will work if those people still think this app is something in a year. Well, yeah. Because it changes so fast. Right. But it's not a bad idea for a year. So Rand Paul is going to win because of Snapchat. Wouldn't that be great? He'd be our first Snapchat president. There you go. I keep telling my kids to stay away from Snapchat. A lot of people do. And instead, I tell them to go to Flinch because that's different. Yeah. Flinch. It's just where you should. Is that, is that still a thing at your house? Uh, you know, I didn't hear much about it this weekend. Hmm. They, I think we, I think they're flinched out. It's just one of those fads. All right. It's almost like 1010. Uh. It's like ten ten. I constantly download apps, look at it, and go eh, and then delete it. I I do too. After I look at it, test drive I, it for I, a second, I test drive it yeah. for a couple of weeks, eight hours a day. And then I'm like eh, and I just toss it, toss it away. That's why we make this sound effect. So that's me going eh. We're done. Throw it away. <sighs> Snapchat. Never got into Snapchat. I never like being snapped. We're going to take a break, my friends. Hour number one, it's in the books. When we come back, starting hour number two, we're going to be talking about giving advice. Maybe it's not the best way to win friends and influence people. We'll find out when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Good 
morning, friends. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend, your coach, your guide on the side, on this journey through life. Every one of us have to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You have your job, your kids, all of these responsibilities, your own health, your friendships. Man, there's a lot to know. And yet, none of us came with a handbook. So this show is the handbook to your life. Hmm. Giving you the tools that you need to make it through. Welcome to the program. Have we got a great show for you. We like to bring you the headlines, not just, you know, not just a traditional run-of-the-mill headline. We like to give you... Sometimes a deeper cut, sometimes not so deep, uh, sometimes just a good laugh at an old story. Also, today we're going to be talking um, about giving advice, you know, maybe giving somebody advice, even if they're asking for it, isn't the best way to help someone out or to grow trust and to strengthen your influence. So we'll be talking to Aldo Chivico is going to be joining us. He's got some great advice on how to give advice. Um, we'll be getting into that, but uh, as always, welcome to the program, and let's go. I'm sure Terry has got something groundbreaking for us. Well, John Kerry. Okay. He is in Switzerland. Start there. Yes, I'll just start right there. He's in Switzerland. Yeah. He is negotiating more with Iran. Yeah. Trying to figure out how to get this agreement by the end of the month. Um, also, he was speaking this weekend at the fourth anniversary of the Civil War in Syria. Hmm. Not really celebrating, but remembering. You, uh, he was. He called the conflict one of the worst tragedies any of us have ever seen. He said the U.S. will have to negotiate in the end with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Wow, that caused a bunch of breaking news banners across yeah. Syria. As oh, so now as we're going to talk to Bashir. Oh boy, they they painted it as the U.S. is buckling and they're going to negotiate and all this stuff. Um, when Kerry's just. Seeing that this the way this is working out, it's going to be this huge, long, till the end slog type of a, yeah. a situation. And the way you end it is you negotiate. And so, well, if, so but we're negotiating. Future. Okay, so it seems like this is double speak because we're talking about this was one of the worst events in the history of all humanity, and and we're going to have to go talk to him. We have to go talk to him. Probably in the end, giving something in but order to t- get him usually to, what happens. There's concessions. So. Kind of a uh, – I just found it interesting that he says that, which is just kind of going through the logical end of this conflict. Right. And uh, they took it as the U.S. is buckling. Hmm. No. (laughs) Well, well, and it's interesting that, I mean, uh, this tied to Iran, it all – and remember, this is all kind of going around – on around ISIS. Yes. And so it it just seems like there's other things going on here. Could be. Like maybe – is this just our way of – you know, some presidents would just send troops in, blow the crud out of ISIS. But we're war weary. We're yeah, yeah. If the, if we didn't have you know ten fifteen years of Afghanistan and yeah. Iraq, then maybe. But so instead, now everyone's crying. You're buckling, you buckler. That's right. Hmm. The debt ceiling. Remember that? Ah, it's my favorite kind of ceiling. Well, the last time we visited the debt ceiling, yeah, as a nation. Our, there was a uh, shutdown. Because... Our, our esteemed leader shut the government down. <laughs> and then when they came to an agreement, they just sort of kicked the thing down the road a One few week. months. That was and, like a week uh, or a month. Well, that was... Oh, that was the other. That, that was Homeland Security. That was Homeland Security. But this budget. is the, the, yeah. the, the ability for our country to uh, pay off and take on So we kicked it down a few months. So it says the cap on U.S. government borrowing returns. 
Boy. So it returned on Sunday, so it's active today. $18 trillion borrowing limit was reinstated after a temporary reprieve. Lawmakers in Washington will once again have to solve the problem, find a way to delay it, as they've done in the past. The uh, The problem now, one solution for the Treasury is to mint a $1 trillion platinum coin. Well, who would hold it? Who would ever get that coin? Probably the Secretary of the Treasury. Yeah, he'd, he'd so just says, keep it in his pocket. So, some people believe that the U- U.S. law allows the Secretary of the Treasury to mint platinum coins of any denomination without asking Congress for approval. So the oh, Treasury brother. mints the coin worth a trillion dollars or more, walks down the street to the Federal Reserve and deposits to pay off all the bills for the U.S. Here you go. Here's my lucky coin made of platinum. Now, I don't know what that would do to the economy where well, you just, you know, as you keep saying, printing money, right? Yeah, this would just be... But what happens when he loses that coin in the vending machine? <laughs> He's like, I was going for a soda and, oh, yeah. A darnest thing. It says, this year the return of the debt ceiling comes in the middle of tax filing season, which makes it harder for the Treasury to know how much money the government will have coming in and thus difficult to predict how long the U.S. can go without lifting the cap. Well, did we not, did we not think this through? No, of course not. I mean, we... They just wanted to push it beyond the elections. Yeah. That's all the, the whole point of all this was, yeah. was just get it past November. We always do everything around when we're going to be able to get our money back from taxes. Absolutely. So right. now, now you put it in the middle of tax season, and it's all up in the air. Yeah. Because that, that, that's how they tell you it, it, it's Friday night at midnight because they can tell when the money runs out. Well, now they don't know how much money they have, so they can't tell you what that date is. It seems like uh, there's just something wrong with being able to make your own coin. Because if, if that were possible, it yeah. seems like any Joe Blow could just say, no, here's my lucky coin. Well, that's why it says, some, it says some people. Yeah. If you interpret the rules, you can come to that conclusion. But it seems if we wanted to pay off, if, if any government could just print some random number of money and throw it yeah. at the problem, it would fix every problem ever. But that money has to be accepted by somebody as currency and yeah. you know money. Well, have you ever played Monopoly? Yes. So there's a set amount of money. It just seems like if you just kept bringing more money from other Monopoly games. Yeah, if you just keep piling more money in. It seems like it would devalue or it would change valuation. I was I went on my mission to Argentina where they just started adding zeros to their money. Yes. Because it doesn't it, help. It was, yeah. You get inflation, mm-hmm. loaf of bread costs five million. Five million Australis. Australis. And then all of a sudden... You're like you got this suitcase full of food or of, of uh, money just to pay for your loaf of bread. It's bad. Hmm. Fun, huh? I mean, what do we know? I, you know, I hate math. I, I'm just reading. I, I don't really the math part of this it. This is I, why we're in the arts, not the sciences. The arts. Their University of Michigan has developed a new machine capable of keeping lungs alive, quote unquote, alive for up to six hours outside the body. Wow. Like, so if your lungs want to take a trip. Yeah. Little, you, little, you know, vacay so outside is, the rib cage. So somebody dies, you could keep their lungs alive and active for up to six hours for a transplant, probably. Probably. The machine pumps special fluid through the lungs to recondition them for transplant. The aim is to flush out donor lungs and make them usable for longer periods That's of time, great. potentially saving more lives. Wow. James, you got something to say about that? I could see. You're oh, chomping at the bit. Uh, oh yeah, I just I I thought of a good one. What? If your lungs want to take a breather, they got a new system for that. Wow. <laughs> that was anyway. Moving um, on. Um, it's great news in the medical world. <laughs> so it's like changing out the filter, your furnace filter. Yeah. 
They just flush the the lungs out to get all the uh, improprieties. But and like move that's on. a big deal. I mean, lungs. You know, if you all of a sudden you're you're transplanting lungs or just sending them out for a breather. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good one. Anyway, it's gonna live on forever. Did you hear what the Pope said over the weekend? Uh, no. He believes he's talking to a Mexican broadcaster on the second anniversary oh, of his rise this. to the papacy. Yeah, yeah. He says he claims that he will his pomp. Pontificate? Yeah. His reign. It's like his certificate of pontification. There you go. It will be brief. Four to five years. He goes, I don't know, even two to three years. Well, two have already passed, so, you know, two to three years isn't left. Isn't that weird? Because, see, if you, a lot of people, you know, believe he's he's inspired, so is this something that God has told him? He's only got a four to five year reign or pontificate? Yeah. I don't know. He also said that he misses real life and he'd like to get a pizza every once in a while. Dude. But being the Pope, he just can't, you know, walk out and go buy a pizza. He just needs to get in, like, what they need to get him is, like, a white pantsuit. Well, probably get away from the color white. <laughs> I wouldn't want to eat a pizza in a white sweatshirt, pantsuit. Get a sweatshirt, some blue jeans, ball cap. The guy needs to go get, get, get out. Pizza. He, needs to get, he needs to get out there. Yeah. But that's an interesting thing because I bet, I mean, now if in two to three years he's done, he kind of likes the idea of the previous pontiff. That just kind of went into retirement. Yeah, he's in the retirement homes there on the Vatican, just See, hanging out. I mean, eventually you're going to have a senior living center on of the former popes at the Vatican. Yeah. The former popes don't do the the life calling. Just, See, but he'll you know. never be able to leave. It's not like he can go back to Buenos Aires and be the cardinal again. He's going to be trapped in the Vatican. Yeah, and it seems like to me that would impact less lives. I mean, just being you're just going to impact the people in the senior center. But maybe he could get some pizza at that point. Man, just get the man a pizza. How hard is it to get? They, they don't have a pizza place at the Vatican? He's in Italy. Get a pizza. Get a pizza for heaven's sakes. Real pizza. Yeah. Wow. This is good stuff. We're going to take a break, my friends. And when we come back, uh, we have a great uh, a great guest coming up. Aldo Chivico is going to join us. And he's a Ph.D., and a professor, an expert in uh, relationships, interpersonal relationships and negotiation, maybe giving advice to people, even if they're asking for it. Maybe it's not the best way to uh, influence them. He's going to give us some other alternatives and, and maybe let us think about uh, the advice we give to people. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back on Giving Advice. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, sometimes you remember being a kid, and uh, did you ever go to your mom or your brother or your sister after a really hard day at school, and you tell them about it, and before you even got to the juiciest bits of your miserable day, they were already throwing out solutions left and right. Suddenly you felt really dumb and annoyed for not having thought of those solutions first. This maybe isn't always the best way to give advice, so what would be? Dr. Aldo Chivico is joining us. He is a conflict resolution expert, joins us now uh, to help us out. Welcome, Dr. Chivico. Welcome. Thank you for having me back, Matt. So great. And we had John just a couple weeks ago. Loved it so much. We had to get back on this uh, this next topic uh, from your blog. 
Um, again, it seems like if, if I give somebody advice, it's just because I love them, right? I mean, whether you're a parent or just somebody that cares, if I'm giving you advice, doesn't, isn't it just a sign that I'm wanting to be helpful? Yeah, you're right. That, that's really uh, our mindset, right? That's what we uh, believe, and that's why we think we give advice. But we risk many times not only to give the wrong advice, but also really to give it so that we ourselves feel good, right? Because right. think about it. When someone comes to you with a problem and someone comes with you with a question, it makes you feel important. It makes you feel significant. It makes you feel connected with the person and that you're giving a, uh, making a contribution to that solution. Um, so giving advice right away when someone comes up with a problem is actually a great temptation we constantly are tempted <laughs> to, to, to give in. Yeah. Uh, truth, is, truth is that uh, unless there is a moment uh, of empathy, unless there is a moment of compassion, uh, it's really difficult to uh, be in the shoes of the other, to understand the problem of the other like the other is living it. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. And especially, I, I think... Even though that's not our intention, but unconsciously, the message that we give to the other is you are not good enough because you cannot solve your problems. Mm. And, and we dismiss the potential and the resources and that each one of us has internally to actually confront that situation, to, to be able to find the solution. So, so someone might you know, being in a moment of confusion, being in a moment of crisis, but that doesn't mean that someone doesn't have within himself or herself very resources to find what's the best next step, what's the solution, what's the path towards a better moment in well-being. And you know what's funny, Aldo, like even with my wife, um, she might just be asking a question like, like, what should I do about this? And she's not even asking for advice. She's just trying to almost just start the conversation. And really, right. when and, I get into advising yeah, and, her, it's like, oh, yeah, you couldn't figure this out. Let me show you. Right. So it's a stimulus that we get, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and we react uh, right away to that stimulus without realizing that sometimes, like in the examples, example you just gave, we interrupt actually uh, the communication, we interrupt the conversation, having the opposite effect of what uh, we would, could have, uh, taking advantage and taking the opportunity that someone is coming to us with a question. Yeah. Does it, um, I mean, does, does any of this matter? Like I have professionally people pay me to, to work with them and to give them answers. And so they come in thinking I'm going to give an answer. And sometimes I've noticed I just want to listen. And by listening to them, it'll help them solve their problems on their own, except they want me to answer. You know what I mean? It's like a weird social, yeah. you know, it, it, process. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so it, it is true, right? And, and, and I can relate to that as an educator with my students or with my own clients when I, when I do coaching or groups I work with. They come actually to you because they have a question. Uh, there is something they want to figure it out. Right. right? And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes they really want uh, a concrete advice. Uh, because maybe unconsciously or mentally we're also a little bit lazy uh, to, to, to find the solution uh, on their own. And, and so we would like to have something uh, from the shelves already ready that they can take. Right. right? Um, I, I think, that, you know, the first exercise is not to give in to the idea of giving advice right away, right? But it's actually start an exploration 
um, so, so that you create that space from which then a solution can emerge. Uh, so even if it comes from you, um, it might come from you, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it, is, it is part of a conversation and it's something that transcends, if you want, that relation and that problem of the person that came to you. So I think the first thing is really, rather than reacting with the response, the first thing is really a focused, uh, empathetic listening. Uh, because that uh, allows you not only to gain insights, but allows the person to get in touch uh, with himself or herself and connect with those inner resources. You bet. Right? So this is why, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's, that's what you do when, when your clients come, come to you. It is actually starting an inquiry with open-ended questions, right? So going deeper and deeper into the issue, into this situation, and, and, and explore it, right? So, so, so that it becomes an inquiry, a journey towards a possible solution, rather than, you know, giving something that is already ready yeah, and, yeah. and take it from a shelves and give it to them. See, and, and it seems like this process is good for me because it's increasing my understanding of what's really going on and opens up my, you know, the breadth of what I know. But it also is good for them because they see that I really am understanding. I'm getting what their real issue is. And, I, and I'm a, how does that impact their ability to then take my advice? I mean, a lot of people give advice, but if you notice that people aren't taking your advice – then there's probably, you know, you, you probably need to work on this. You need to work on it, or, or maybe that's really not why they came for you, yeah. to you, right? So they actually then not listening because maybe all, all they wanted to do was to vent, you know, all, all, they were in a sort of a uh, mood of being the victim or the martyr of a situation and, and they wanted just to play out that role, right? So yeah. it is really, you, you actually feeding into that when, when you give an advice, you, 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 uh, strengthen the condition of the victim, the identity of the victim, uh, if you just give an advice and, and, and react to a problem, instead of helping the person to discover his or her own resources and empower that person, uh, snap, them, snap them out from the condition of, of victimhood that uh, leads nowhere, right, in terms of solution, in terms of growth. You bet. Well, I mean, it's also, it seems like we live in a society where ev there's an answer for everything, and it's just nine ninety nine. And it, you know, three installments of nine ninety nine. Have we have we created such a maybe a victim culture that that everybody's waiting for someone else to solve their problem? Yeah, and sometimes we don't realize that self growth takes really hard and serious work. It's not uh, something that you can get automatically just because you buy a self help book or because you buy an online course and 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 you read a few things and then it's done right it's uh, growth and, and personal growth is a is a journey that ends when when life ends really and it's a constant work on ourselves because we are also in constant evolution and and so we need to do a work it's, there is no there is no sh shortcut in in uh, self development in that sense right so, yeah. so we need to be realize that and and sometimes you know people come because again Maybe they're a little bit lazy, right? They hope that you can give them uh, the, the, the quick uh, solution to, to their problem without them having to do the work. So this is also why, you know, whenever someone comes to me and wants to be coached or trained, uh, I don't say right away, yes, I want to make sure that there is a real commitment to self-growth. So it's actually quite hard uh, to get me as a, as, a, as a coach because I really I, I know that it's you, my client, that has to do the majority the of work. the work, not me. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that idea, too. And just the, I love, too, in your article, you mentioned the fact and the article was on psychology today. 
But uh, it's it's such a great insight into, I think, a lot of us professionally. This is one of the biggest vices, I think, of uh, kind of a thought leader personality or person that's done a lot of study, that's done a lot of work. We get stuck in this idea that we we have just the answer and we've you know we've written it in a way and it's perfect little nutshell so take it but um there isn't just a one size fits all piece of information is there yeah absolutely and and uh, and plus if you really don't listen if you really don't do an inquiry which is more about questions than answers you if you think about it you take a huge responsibility in telling someone what you he has to do right? totally and and, uh, and, and so you have to be very careful in, in that sense uh, as well, right? So the best advice is really uh, a focused silence uh, that allows for the other person to listen to himself or herself mm-hmm. and find the, the resources uh, within himself or herself. No, I love it. And I, and I love the idea, too. I mean, it just goes back to the ancient wisdom of, you know, seek first to understand, then to be understood. We have to understand what's going on before anything we say really truly matters. We're talking with Aldo Chivico from the website aldochivico.com. Aldo Chivico is spelled A-L-D-O-C-I-V-I-C-O.com. And uh, Aldo has been on the show before. He, he really is, uh, has some interesting insight here. He's an anthropologist, conflict resolution expert and mediator, also works as a professor at Rutgers University in Newark and a conflict resolution lecturer at Columbia University I'm so honored to have him on the show. We're going to take a break. When we come back, more advice on how to give advice. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. I love David Bowie. Are you under pressure? Well, maybe what you just need is some advice. So shut your flapper and let me give you some advice. When you think about it, folks, if you're under pressure, you got to get the pressure out of you. And then, but instead, you know, we go get, we go ask somebody, hey, can we talk? And next thing we know, they're advising us. But I'm the one with the pressure. Well, I know. So shut your flapper and do this. Maybe the best way to let go of some of that pressure is if we let people talk. Huh? I don't know. Call me old-fashioned. On the phone with us is Aldo Chivico. And Aldo uh, is a a blogger at Psychology Today and also um, is an anthropologist. Is a professor of anthropology at Rutgers University in Newark and is a conflict resolution lecturer at Columbia University. He wrote an article called What's Wrong with Giving Advice? And he's been talking about the fact that maybe what we need to do first is just listen and empathically listen to people instead of just starting right out and advising them. Even if our answer is right, it's probably still better. Even if we have an answer that could save them pain, it still might be better to just let them talk and explore it first. Aldo Chivico, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Matt. Good to be with you. Do you do you believe that, Aldo, the, the idea that even if I have the right answer and my answer could be efficient and and actually fix the problem, it's still better to listen? 
first. Oh yes, absolutely. You know, and 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 let me break it down to you because what does it mean when you say just listen, right? It doesn't mean only that you don't interrupt right. or that you don't uh, talk or you don't give the answer. It really means, first of all, that you make silence within you, that you somehow quieten your mind and make space in the mind for the other person to share his or her concern. Let me give you a very practical example that if you want, you know, prompt also um, the, the, the article I wrote for Psychology Today. Yeah. Uh, my, my dad is 80 two years old, right? And, and he had some bronchitis because it was very cold back in Italy where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we had this phone conversation on a Sunday and he was a little bit anxious, right? Because aware of his age, aware of the yeah. dangers of uh, bronchitis. So he was sharing um, his anxiety, his fear. And, and uh, you know, when I realized that, I, I just didn't want to face the prospect of my father being seriously sick at that age, right? Yeah, right. And so, and so in, instead of listening him out, recognizing that there was some fear and some anxiety and making the space so that he could, you know, express himself, I started giving him advice on how to take care of himself, right? But it was really not advice for him. It was a way for me to manage that anxiety that he uh, passed was, to me. Yeah, it was creating like, New York it. cannot be de- there, right? Yeah. And then when the call was over, I said, damn, you know, despite all your training, you really got, uh, you really <laughs> did the wrong thing. You really Aldo, uh, you blew did the it. opposite, yeah. right? And, but and, it's your and fear. So I realized that I was not ready to listen because I was listening and, and giving in, you know, to my own mm-hmm. emotions. So that's what you're saying. You're not – you're saying – because part of being an effective communicator and listener, it's not just listening. It's it's actually silencing all of your own inner talk, your own inner Absolutely. fear. Yeah. Right. Uh, because, you know, otherwise it's like if you have already a glass full of water – uh, it's like pouring water in a, a full glass. It doesn't work. You have to empty the glass so that you can, you know, accept and welcome the yeah. new liquid, the new person, and, and what the person really wants to communicate. So that, that's really, I would say, the first skill someone needs to develop. And it's, as I just told you, you know, even if you go to training, you practice it professionally, then once in a while you have to be reminded, you know, to go back to, 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 to the basics. Yeah. Uh, but you really need to quieten yourself. You really need to make silence within yourself, right? And, and maybe the best practical way, the way I do it, is by checking in with my breath and, and seeing where my, my breath is. And, and by focusing on that, you know, my mind goes, slows down a lot already, and, and I'm more connected with the other person. I think that that's really... The first thing, once we are connected with the other person, it's easy, of course, to listen and to make that space. Mm. And, and even if you have a solution, as you mentioned before, if it comes from that space, then it's, it's most of, you know, it's a shared, you're just saying something uh, that the other already has somehow within himself and is already feeling. So it, it's emerging from the relation. It's not emerging from you. Yeah, I, I love that. Then it's then it's not just traditional advising. It's you. It's it's actually an, an emergence of their problem and your insight in a neutral space creates something new. So a lot of times you might even end up saying something in a new way that you've never thought of, and and everyone that gets lifted, right? Everyone's benefited. Yeah, absolutely. You know, back into the example of my father, of course he knows how to take care of himself, right? right? When, when he has a cold, that was not the advice he actually was looking for, right. right? Even though that's the advice I gave him. He was really looking for his need in that moment was to, to express his fear and his anxiety, right? Yeah. And, and, 
And by not uh, being silent myself, uh, I didn't give him that completely, at least that opportunity when we talked, right? And then, then of course, I called him back and, and, and we had a different kind of conversation because I had to make it up and, and, and to give him that space, right? But that's exactly the danger when even if you have a solution, right? Mm-hmm. I know how to take care about myself when you have a cold. If you have a practical solution, it might not be what, what that other person needs and wants actually to hear. Sometimes really they come with a problem because it's more a way to start a conversation and start a dialogue, and not because they, 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 they need a solution. Most of the time, p- people know what the next step is. No, right. They need that space, right, to, to make it comfortable, to, to, to clarify their thoughts. And, and many times that comes when, when there is a space where you can articulate uh, that thought. Well, and you and you let their thinking become more transparent by letting them share it. And but I yeah. guess that's the key to it, huh? Because you need to make sure you know how to not take their energy and just create more fear in you. you like your dad had some fear; he just wanted to share his state of health and and get it all out of him. But if you don't have that neutral space, then you're going to become fearful. And then, I mean, I've seen that turn into an argument or a fight or, um, or just a missed opportunity to help heal. I mean, your, gra- your dad just needed to get it out of him. And if you yeah, could just absolutely. let it out, then he can heal. Yeah. And it's then, cool. you know, w- w- when the moment comes to actually talk, uh, because I'm, I'm not uh, arguing or advocating for not giving advice, right? right? My, my, my technique or my solution many times is to share a story that might also not seem related to what we are talking. But while I'm telling a story from my own experience or, or someone else, the person has the time to process what, what um, he or she just shared with me. And, and by listening to that story, even though it's related to someone else who a different kind of situation, they make the necessary connections that allows them then for a solution to emerge. Hmm. No, I love that. I mean, it, again, that's, you know, Christ uh, in the Bible used to use parables all of the time so that the parables could teach the lessons. Yeah. Not having to, that's you don't actually, have to advise yeah, somebody. That's actually how he was giving advice, right? Right. Someone w- would come with a problem, with a situation, with a question, and he would relate a story, share a story that, a parable that apparently didn't have anything to do with <laughs> what they said, right? Or right. Kind of, Right. And, and, and was given that wisdom that allowed for people who wanted to, then, you know, to take it up and, and, and understand something very important about life. Well, and Buddha did similar things. I mean, I, there's power in the there's power in just being in the space as um, you, you keep calling it the space. And, and you also kind of call it. I mean, it's it's a it's a place of peace where you almost just allow the other person to think through their thinking without you reacting to it. Exactly. You work more as, as, a, as a mirror, right, yeah, there you go. where the other person can see himself or herself uh, and, and, uh, and find, you know, the, 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 the solution. So you're a sounding board, right, rather than, rather than the doctor that gives you the diagnosis and then the therapy so that you can be well again. Yeah, the guru that has all the answers. Um, right. Is it so? Which we don't have, by the way. No, right. right. Well, right. And, and honestly... How convenient that I'm supposed to know what you're supposed to do, which I guess means right. also I'm responsible when it doesn't work. Yeah. We often can't figure out our own problems, but somehow we are always ready to figure out the other's problems. Sure. There is some, some interesting dynamic there. Talk about that a little bit, because um, I love the idea and just the, the basic belief that 
everybody has their own answers. We just have to let them get there, get to them. And, and because it's a it's kind of an intimate process that we're about when we're helping somebody find their own answers. Why is it why is the paradigm that they have their own answers so critical to have in our minds? Because I think that's recognizing also the human potential that is in all of us, right? If, even if we, when we think about our own experience, uh, most of the times we figure it out ourselves, right? Even right. though we hurt, even if someone gave us an advice, unless we took that advice and we make, made it our own, and that, that making our own depends then really on our own insights and experiences, it's not it's not working it's not functional right so so there is a huge human potential within us uh, sometimes it's a potential and it's not in action it's not discovered um, and so that's actually I think why we you know crises or problems are so important in our lives because they are windows that open up the opportunity for growth for a new exploration for finding new answers for finding new paths Paths that were unexplored. We, you know, we grow according to to our challenges, right? So, we, you know, one of the first things that I think is always very important is realizing that every time we have a conflict, every time we have a crisis, is actually every time we are confused, there is a, a huge possibility that opens up to explore yeah. something, a new path, right? So, that's when the potential actually can come out. So unless we help someone who is confused in crisis, facing a problem, a conflict, unless we help that person to explore, to initiate that exploration, that journey, we are actually, by giving an answer and advice right away um, and move on, we actually don't allow that person to, to grow, to, to find resources and to explore things that are inside, potentials that are inside and that are there waiting for um, for, for, for emerging and for uh, developing. It's almost like when we see it with our children as a parent, I, I mean, I could tie their shoes, I could do everything, I could pick out their clothes, but if I make every choice for them, they're not, they're not learning to how to make these right. choices themselves. If I, if I make the decisions or the, give the advice to people as adults, they also aren't taking the responsibility or learning how to come up with the answers themselves. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and then you have, you know, immaturity across ages and uh, and generations just because you didn't give the opportunity, you know, to people to make choices, to make a decision. And at the end of the day, our life and our destiny is really the result of the decisions that we made, right? So in moments of confusion and crisis, those are very important moments in life, actually, because those moments shape our destiny, shape our life. And we should help people uh, to find out what's the best decision rather than giving them uh, um, a fixed solution uh, yeah. like a pill because you have some, some flu. Yeah. I, one of my favorite um, things I've, I've just learned is when people keep asking advice, one, one of my favorite things is to not have an answer. Like, I don't, I don't know the answer here. And then all yeah. of a sudden when you finally don't have the answer but they've always thought you have – then it, it, you know, it's almost in their mind, it dawns on them that, well, I guess I'll have to figure it out. But right. sometimes right. not knowing is, is another way to just not be able to give advice. So I don't know, but I know, I know we can figure it out. Tell me what you're feeling and then get them talking. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And it Absolutely. takes that pressure off you a little bit. I also love, although, just the the principle, the basic concept that it's about a space. It's about being authentic, and it's about um, you know creating a place of peace where you have compassion. And I mean, eventually, you might be able to guide a little bit if if you know if you really have the insight or use your use your insight to really ask the right questions so they find it themselves. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I say I'm not advocating for not giving advice, yeah, right? Yeah. But it has to come out as a as a part of his dialogue, as part right. of his conversation, right? And and then maybe you know you're called to express to to give words to something that the other person is already um, feeling, right? Yeah. Or you, you 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 want to also say you know based to my experience, if you go along that path, here is what you might encounter, right? Yeah. Um, so, so so there are moments where you actually have to right uh, tell a person that that might be harmful if you do that, right? right? But it has to come from uh, this relationship, from from a, a deep connection and a deep bond, uh, because otherwise you just talk to the wind. Right? That's right. Yeah, and, it and came from. It's yeah. also not really taking on upon that, 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 that advice or that counsel that you're giving. In fact, I love that. That is, to me, one of the greatest signs that they're ready for any advice is when, you know, they're influencing you in what to say and what to do and what to know, and they're, they're almost, they're asking for it. Like, after, so they might ask for it, how can I fix this? And then, instead of answering it, let's go with them. Let's understand it. Let's explore it. Let's get in that space. And then 20 minutes later, they might say, so, so any advice? That stage, that second invitation seems so much more powerful and, and real and more likely to be acted on than the first invitation. Absolutely. And also how you give – it might be, you know, the same answer. In yeah, exactly. Content. It might be the same thing that you wanted to say right away. But the way you will see it and the way uh, – say it and the way it will be accepted it will be completely different. Yeah. And it will actually make an impact. And yeah, and your influence has now changed because you've been influenced yeah, by them. That's beautiful. Well, Aldo, we appreciate you again. Uh, everybody, go to his website, Aldo Chivico. Um, he is an anthropologist, conflict resolution expert, and mediator. You can also find him at Rutgers University in Newark um, and a lecturer at Columbia University. Aldo Chivico, uh, just a great resource for us here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break when we come back, do a little coach's corner as we wrap up. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. That's the hoedown music. It means we're wrapping up the hour thought we'd do it with a little coach's corner, you know, for a living. I get to do uh, what Aldo Chivico was teaching us in that last uh, segment. We get to, we teach people how to talk and have these conversations. It really is. Uh, it's not an easy thing because we think, you know, we know how to communicate. We were born with a mouth, for heaven's sakes. But notice how he talked about that spirit of just a safe place. It reminded me of a story uh, with the Quakers um, and as a religious group, they, you know, they, they had certain practices, certain traditions that they would use. One of the things they used that it, to me is, is very parallel to what Aldo was teaching is this idea called a clearing committee. Okay. So a clearing committee, basic idea goes like this. When you have a big decision to make in the, and you're a Quaker, you, you need, 
you need help. You need insight. So what you would do is you'd create a clearing committee. You'd go to a bunch of your elders, people you trust. You'd bring them into a room, and we would we would sit in a room together. And in that room, we'd sit in a circle. And um, everybody on the committee will then be informed as to what the decision is. Like it might be, should I marry this person? Should I go away and live in this other group or whatever? And um, the clearing committee had one basic job. The clearing committee's job was not to advise you. They were just only allowed to ask questions. They weren't here to even ask a leading question. Like, don't you know that nine kids out of ten do this if they go there? But just a question. And um, the, the questions would be asked to the person that is looking for, you know, for clearing and clarity. And they would sit there for as long as it takes and just talk and create a safe space for this person to explore what they're going through. A clearing committee. And how powerful is that? What if you knew you could sit down with your elders and or your parents and just ask and just go through the process of talking about what you need to talk about without their fears coming into the story, without their sense of inadequacy, without their insecurities hitting you know, each one of these answers, each one of these issues. So a clearing committee is really all that Aldo is proposing. Think about that with your own kids, with your own family, with your own grandchildren. Do you act as somebody that is a, is a strong sounding board for them? Do you just – are you willing to hear their point of view without allowing your fears to become part of the conversation? It's one thing to have a – to be opinionated. It's another thing to allow the space for this information to be asked and to just sit there and, and powerfully – sit in it. Now, again, it doesn't mean eventually you can't advise and give advice. On a clearing committee, the rules were you shouldn't give advice. But in real life, you can give advice, but wouldn't it make more sense the best place to give that advice is after you've first been influenced? One of my favorite principles that Stephen Covey used to teach, uh, and I got to work in his organization and had chances to work in his office with him, is simply... Uh, it was habit number five of the seven habits. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And the more effective we can understand somebody, the more effectively we can actually see where they're going, hear where they're going, the more powerful our response will be anyway. So there's there's incredible power just in trying to first let somebody influence you before you seek to influence them. So think about that in your own life, your own private life. Do you feel like you do that very well? Do you feel like you're somebody that uh, is really quick to listen instead of quick to reply? And I have a hard time with that. I really do. I mean, I have I have uh, times where you know people come up and they just ask one question or they send me an email and uh, can you just answer this one question about my marriage? <laughs> and I, I can't. I get tired of writing. You know, marriage is complex, so I need to kind of know more. Um, so it's easy to just get into a position where you'll just throw out an idea. Um, also, I think that that is why some of the great thought leaders of the world uh, would use more like more parables. In fact, in my church uh, meetings yesterday, I, I got to teach about parables. And there's just something really powerful about a parable that is just a simple idea. 
a simple idea that that if you just kind of allow the idea to soak in and just sink in, it can hold a lot of really powerful you know ideas and imagery and and again it might be just a lot of times i think our stories are ways that we hold information and um they can be brought out later so one thing i've i've kind of learned in my own world is anytime i i use a parable i try to also teach the principle behind it not the practice one of the things i've noticed in in giving people advice is if i only focus on a practice the practices don't always apply universally Right, we could talk about diets, but diets don't apply to everyone universally. Everybody has a different way that they might need to lose weight, and yet the principles could apply. Principles like, uh, you know, um, exercise. Principles like moderation in our intake, hydration. Those uh, um, might all be effective ways to manage health. Where, you know, certain diets are just practices that won't work if we don't have that special device or won't work if we don't have the food from that group or won't work if we can't get that one special grain that is only sold in three countries in the world. So think about it. When you're advising somebody, maybe try to just create more space. Ask more questions. And a great way to just kind of get them talking is I just recognize their emotion and I invite them to share more. Man, you really seem upset about this topic. Tell me what's going on and just invite them to share more. And then as they're sharing it, just keep inviting more sharing. You could even reflect back what you're hearing, invite a little bit more. The idea I see is the more that they talk, I can actually see their emotion going down. I can see my understanding going up, which is what's going to open up the chance for my advising to even matter. Anyway, basic stuff, isn't it? But you think about you. Are you an effective listener? Do you create that space with the people around you? Are you open to, uh, to hearing what they have to say without your emotion taking over, without getting hijacked with it all? Interesting stuff. Interesting lessons. We're here to learn, folks, giving you the tools you need to, to help create your healthy life with the people you love. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Hour number two. It's in the books, my friend. Back with hour number three after this break. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, hour number three of this uh, game we call the Love Fest 2015. We're going to make you feel the love. Uh, This is all in celebration of the upcoming nuptials on May 2nd. James Birdsall and McClonic Klonaklonovich. It's going to be a big moment. It's a beautiful name, isn't it? When do you think you're going to let me in on the big on what her real name is? I suppose when you receive an invitation to the event. Oh, am I getting you'll, one? You'll have to. I'm going to get an invitation. Yeah, yeah. I suppose so. She's she said that I need to send you one. Perfect. Well, so then I can come in on the show and talk about and use her name. Then you would know her name, yes. And are you guys still going to come in and have a little meeting with me, a little interview? Like, have nothing to do with the show, just me giving you some pre-marriage coaching stuff. 
We'll see. That's still pending. Depending on pending, you know, details, your busy schedule. You know, I have to talk to my people. Your people? Yeah, my people. When did you get people? You have to have people these days. I know. I'm wondering when you got yours. <laughs> you know, just <sighs> in the past. It almost seems, as I listen to you because of our last guest, it almost seems like you, you're hesitant to come see me with Makanilanovich. I like you're know. afraid of something. Maybe. You think I could blow it? Do you think I could blow it for you? Like just ruin the whole idea? If you start talking about my parole officers, maybe. Okay. I won't bring that up. Okay. Okay. Anyway, I feel bad. Parole officers. Did you not know about his I parole? did not know that. What's Holy his past God. light? Oh, you, I can't. Well, it's almost like something we shouldn't bring up on the air. However. <laughs> um, since we're on the topic. Since we're on the topic. You <laughs> never heard bad. about when the parole officer came looking for him around the office here? No. He's all dressed up like a cop. All right. His keys are jingling. Of course. His taser's like... They're always on. It's always on. That's how they work. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, I'm looking for Mr. Birdsall. I'm like, we are too. We never know where he goes. He was under his desk. I would be too. Parole officer shows up? With his taser? (laughs) What what were you in for, by the way? You know, I'm just... I'm legally uh, unable to answer Larceny. Well, larceny. it may or may not have been larceny. I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny. You ought to wow. be in poli sci. <laughs> You'd be great at that. So last segment, yeah. or last guest, it was two segments ago, but you talked about it last segment too. Conflict resolution. Yes. By the way, the world needs it. Who else needs it? There is a huge conflict going on. What? Over the streaming rights for all the Seinfeld episodes. Oh, this is huge. This is big money. 180 episodes. Yeah. They're trying to sell it to the highest bidder. Yeah. Who wants it? Everybody. Netflix? No. Well, they did, but they backed out. It was too expensive. Yeah. And they just bought Friends. Yeah. They have all the streaming rights for Friends. So they thought, you know, we have one. We have one. We don't need two iconic comedies from- But they spent spent hundreds of millions of dollars, right? For Friends, yes. Yeah. So now you got Hulu. Who? Amazon. Who? Lou. Who? Lou. Amazon wants them. Amazon wants it and Yahoo. So this will be a hundred million dollars at least. Well, they're saying ninety million at the very low end. So yeah, okay, yeah, ninety million. That's probably where they walked in and said ninety million to start. Well, that's where I'd start. Absolutely. Anything lower, there's it's robbery, right? I mean, if they asked for the rights to this show, I'd say nine, ten. It would also be non-exclusive as they will continue to have those episodes in syndication. Well, that doesn't seem right. You're when paying you're... for rights that aren't exclusive. It's Seinfeld. You can just walk in and name a price and people will fight yeah, over on you. On Seinfeld, you could turn on any station and have Seinfeld on. Yeah, and you still can. Yeah. It'll okay. still be there. It just will also, you can go and pick your whatever episode you want on whatever streaming service. That's cool. So there's that out there. Uh, apparently, we're throwing away tons of fruit and vegetables. You Did know, you know what? this? It's those kids. An op ed piece in the Washington Post. Yeah. This is Ann Lee. She's a PhD student from Stanford. Mm. So apparently if you're a student, you can also write op-ed pieces that Absolutely. get published and then reread by other people. <laughs> the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations estimates that high cosmetic standards in retail industry exclude 20 to 40% of fresh produce from the market. So yeah. if the produce is an ugly carrot, it's not going to make yeah. it. See, we're so, we're just so narrow-minded. What's the word? We're just so um, petty. What's wrong with a little bruise? Well, in the, in the they had a stock photo in the article, and mm-hmm. it was a really deformed carrot. 
It was like five carrots meshed into yeah. one glob. Like a carrot glob. It's still a carrot, but no one's going to purchase that. No one they wants want a carrot glob. a carrot. They want the yeah. stereotypical carrot shape. And so all this food just gets thrown away. Oh, that's just tragic. Some of it gets pickled or shredded or, you know, they do make other uses out of it, but it still ends up with uh, quite a bit of loss. It says 800 to 900 million tons globally each year, the weight of nine Nimitz-class aircraft carriers. <laughs> That's how much fresh produce we're just throwing away. I love the comparison yeah, no. to an aircraft. <laughs> aircraft carrier. That's like nine Nimitz. <laughs> yeah, they're like nine aircraft carriers. So it's it's quite the waste. It's just, you know, not necessarily a news thing. Well, but... Still, a lot of wasted food. And then everyone, the big joke, well, yeah, but think of how many people in Africa yeah. that would eat whatever globs, carrot globs. Yeah. And this is food. There's nothing wrong with it other than it. But I think our kids are throwing away more than that well, just at school. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't want to get on a tangent here. Go ahead. I left my food in the fridge over the weekend here at BYU Broadcasting and is it they gone? easily threw away a Nimitz worth of <laughs> pasta from my house. Why are you saving food here? I'm not. There's a little sign that says, after 4.30 on Friday, kiss it goodbye. All right. And they cleaned it right out. So just, I don't know who's listening, but my wife is ticked. And she's and I learned in orientation that you do it. I just never passed it on. And then I forgot to get the food. So if you get a call from my wife, you know. And speaking of food, I mentioned this to you were off the air earlier. Yeah. KFC in mm. New Zealand. Oh, yeah. They're introducing a deep fried crispy burrito. Mmm, emu. An emu burrito. It includes fried chicken, cheese, and bacon along with barbecue sauce because oh, everything, barbecue everything sauce is better. goes with everything. It's rolled into a tortilla, deep fried, and it's only available in New Zealand. And that's at KFC? KFC in New Zealand, burritos. It's a chicken burrito or an emu burrito. Yeah, so it's like they're everything else they have on the menu in a burrito. And then deep fried and oh. served with barbecue sauce. Sounds perfect. You could make that a breakfast burrito. You just put a little salsa on it. Maybe toss in an egg. Yeah, throw an egg. There's little, an egg in there. A little egg and a little salsa. Um, it's interesting that what they get away with, they put some weird – I mean, I guess I guess there's not a universal menu. No, I think they sell the franchise and then you have to include the food. But if you want to experiment, I guess. Because around the world they do that with all sorts of fast food franchises. And then here we just get the normal every day. I kind of want – I don't know. I'd like some. I'd like some other choices. Yeah. Well, you, K, KFC's been known to to do this with a, a bunch of different foods. I mean, like they did a a chicken sandwich where instead of bread they had chicken patties. Yeah. And so uh, instead of the bread, what what was in between the patties? I don't know. Probably more chicken. <laughs> so it's a chicken sandwich without bread, just three layers of chicken. Probably something like that. But I mean, they've also done another version of this taco where instead of the tortilla, they had a chicken breast. So wow. somebody's pushing chicken. Yeah, it's a food. That's really good. A California lottery winner lost out on the opportunity to claim a million dollar Powerball prize because he lost the ticket. Oh. <laughs> they have the security camera footage. He walks into they the know store. He, did it. he bought the ticket. They know that he has the ticket, but the rules say you physically have <laughs> to have the ticket when you show up to claim your prize. <laughs> oh, he's gonna. You know what? He's gonna find it. He's gonna find it in a suit coat in about a year. It'll be too late. Oh, the, that is uh, me right there. That is me. How much did you win? Oh, $2 billion. And it says, Can't find the ticket, though. 
there's a uh, Thursday deadline last week. Yeah. And he wasn't able to meet what was, that deadline. What was the lotto number? What were we up to there? Does it say? What, the money? Yeah. It's like a million dollars. Oh, man. So it wasn't a, a mega, but still a million bucks. My wife would kill me. By law, all unclaimed prize money automatically goes to the California public schools. No, no, no. Let's be real. Which they'll spend on iPads. 5% of it and, yeah. goes to the school. Anyway. Well, We've yeah. already done this story on that. <laughs> goes to administrative fees. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, so that tells you, if you're going to play the lotto, focus. Do focus. Don't you don't just throw that around like a little receipt. Just put it in your wallet. Just put it in your wallet because you never know. You and, could and you are probably going to win. That's how it works. So There's I mean, all kinds of winners in the lottery. A lot of winners in the lottery. A lot of losers too. I think statistically, there are more losers in the lottery than winners. Odds are you're one of them. Odds are, if you're a listener, you're a lottery loser too. Not to be rude. Just trying to shoot straight. We're going to take a break. Guess who's in the house? Kimberly Giles. Kimberly Giles, she is uh, She's one of our favorite coaches extraordinaire. She will teach us uh, how to get unstuck. Have you ever just felt like you're in the same hole, you're spinning your wheels, you can't get out, your mind just keeps putting you back in the same hole? Maybe you had a lotto win and you couldn't find your ticket. You're just stuck. Kimberly Giles is going to teach us how to get unstuck by, uh, by I'm going to bet, letting go of fears. I'm going to bet somewhere it's in there. The great teacher, Kimberly Giles, up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In the studio here today, Kimberly Giles is joining us from ClarityPointCoaching.com. ClarityPointCoaching.com. She's the author of Choosing Clarity, a simple system that makes you feel better about yourself and your life. She is a blogger, writer extraordinaire. If you want to ever know anything about anything, go look up Kim Giles and KSL.com. Is that where they'll find it? Yeah, most of my articles have been published on KSL. Tens of millions of articles. Thousands. 300-something, I think, yeah. now. But really, every topic. A lot. You, you're, and you are now going to enlighten us about getting unstuck. People get stuck in habits and rituals, just traditions, thoughts. Well, huh? don't you think a lot of times it's we get stuck in this negative emotion. Yuck. Yeah. I think a lot of times it, it's I'm angry and I just can't get at it not being angry right. or I just feel guilty and I've got all the shame and I can't get out of it and yeah. feel good about myself, that kind of thing. And we then we I guess we blame everyone else. We blame our job, our life. Then we just want something different because we know once it's different, it'll we won't have all that. So I've got a couple ideas about what? getting out. We need to talk about it. And the first one is you've got to take a close look and make sure you're not getting any benefit from being in that place. Yes. And at a subconscious level, you actually kind of like it there. Because I know you yeah. as a coach work with a lot of people and we're tra- we're giving them everything they need to get out and they're not doing it. They still won't do it. They won't do it. It's almost so they might subconscious be self-sabotage. Like – 
I want to get out, but there's this part yeah. of me that doesn't. So I have a foot on the brake and a foot on the gas at the same time yeah. and going nowhere. But then you, if you ask them, so is there any way you're benefiting from, you know, b- being hopeless that you'll ever get a job? And they lo- always look at you like, oh, yeah, like I'm benefiting. <laughs> but Well, let me give you a, yeah. a, an example. I had a client recently who is just drowning in overwhelm. He's stressed out. Life is just all burdens and – and that's just a state all day, every day. Right. And I've been giving him time management, you know, tools. We've been working on getting out of fear so he doesn't experience as much stress. Yeah. And nothing's working. So I finally realized he's getting something from this. So I made him sit down and, and write down on paper all the benefits that you get from being overwhelmed and stressed out and talking about it all the time and complaining about all the work you have to do. And he realized, okay, a couple things. He grew up in this family where if you're working so hard that you're stressed out and overwhelmed, then you're a good person. But That's if you're not stressed, then you must not be working hard enough. Your life is too easy, then oh, you're not trying. Yeah. And and literally, you're not a good person unless you're killing yourself. Yeah. And so in his mind, it, it speaks good about him. In his character to be that overwhelmed. He also realized it's a convenient excuse. If I talk all the time about how overwhelmed I am, nobody's going to ask me to do anything else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he has a really good excuse. If anybody asks him to do something he doesn't really want to do, oh, I just can't. I I have all this stuff. So true. So there's a whole bunch of little benefits that he's getting. Well, and think of that weird psychological thing of your family has equated stressed, overwhelmed to healthy, productive. Yeah, to almost righteous and yeah. good at some yeah. level. Because, yeah, that's how needed you are. Right. You're so needed that God is stretching you to the limits. And people who aren't that overwhelmed are lazy. Lazy. God must not need you. <laughs> so this is one of the many subconscious yeah. ideas or programs that we can pick up as a kid in your family that can just dictate how you feel about your whole life. I hear this from a lot of moms that I feel guilty if I sit down and read I should be cleaning the house or taking care of the kids. Right. I can't have a bubble bath or yeah. anything or nothing I'm, about me. I'm selfish. And and that's probably something you picked up from your mom that you're lazy if, or selfish if you do anything for yourself. And that mindset could be really hurting you. So that might be the thought that keeps you stuck because – and that's a thought you never question. Because it's, right. yeah. it's a rule to you. It's a rule. And and it's you even think it's a, a universal like principle of success. It's – Truth. You think it's – You think it's yeah. truth. And yet – it's not. It's just a concept that's keeping you overwhelmed and never bathing so you smell. <laughs> so that's kind of the second thing I think you've really got to do is is figure out what policies or rules drive some of your behavior. And sometimes it's hard to figure those out. Yeah. One of the reasons of you know all those free things I give away on my website, yeah. we have the fear assessment. I love that. But what's interesting about this little free test is it shows you some of your subconscious thought processes, some of those rules that you have. A lot of us have a rule that people who are skinny and rich are better than me. Oh, yeah. I mean, just to give a simple example, most of us grew up with that one. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've got all kinds or of rules. Or popular or – yeah, like popular is better. 
Yeah. If you're not popular, you have no value. That's true. As a person. Yeah, that's what we think. A lot of men really base their whole value on their performance. Yeah. And so if, I, if I'm not making lots of money and performing at work, I have no value. And those are all subconscious programs you learned as a kid. They're not necessarily truth. And yet you hold on to them. Is that because we just never actively evaluate our thoughts? Or we don't go through assessing the rules that we've made or no, have been handed just, to us? we just let them drive our behavior. And matter of fact, neuroscientists say that 95% of your choices – are driven by these subconscious programs. 95% yeah. of the time, you don't choose your behavior. You just keep you just reacting the way it. you yeah. always have. Well, that's sad. And yet Isn't we sit crazy? here stuck and we're wondering, why am I so stuck? So you've got to change the way you think, the way you see the world. Um, some of the the programs that we recommend somebody changes right off the bat yeah. is how is your value as a person determined? Because this overwhelmed guy who thinks he's a good person if you're overwhelmed and stressed, he's basing his value on his performance. Yeah. It's how hard you work that determines your value. So is that really how you want to determine your value as a person? I believe yeah, right. no. your value may be based totally in your uniqueness. The fact that you're a one-of-a-kind, irreplaceable human soul and that makes you – Infinitely valuable. I mean, priceless, ir- yeah. irreplaceable. And and if your value comes from there, then it's not about how hard you work. No. Now, it's a lot of people when I teach this are afraid that then they'll just be lazy. Oh, so you want me to be just lazy then? Just sit on the couch all day. Just eating Cheetos. Totally. Mm. And feel good about myself. Yeah. And that's not what that's we're not saying. not what you're saying either. We, we want to be motivated to do things, but motivated from a love for life and people and growing and learning you know, filling the measure of my creation, yeah. we can be motivated by lots of things besides fear, fear. that I won't be good enough. Yeah, that, yeah, that your value is going to drop because you're not performing today. I mean, eventually, I just thought this the other day. I actually thought it when my plantar fasciitis was flaring up and I was, as, <laughs> I'd been watching my son's basketball game, so I'm up on the bleachers and it took me about a minute to get down off the bleachers. Yeah. Right then I thought- Because it's in your heel? It's in my heel. Ow. And so when I, when I sit there too long, it just tightens up, and then I walk like a 90-year-old. So as I'm getting down off the bleachers, I was literally mimicking a 90-year-old who was getting down in front of me, and I was feeling probably similar pain. Except that yeah. guy was actually more spry than I was. <laughs> so I sat there and I thought, my life can't just be about my body, or I'm in trouble because my life's not doing very well right now. Yes, as we get older, we can't base our happiness on our on a thing physical or a, an ability. condition, can we? Mm-mm. Well, and there's a lot of people out there with health problems that, if our happiness is based on that, we're in You're trouble. In trouble, or just on your your earning ability. I mean, I look at people that just love being a school teacher, and they don't feel like they make very much, but they know every day they're changing lives, and so they're ha- so content with that. Happiness is not about. Your money, your performance, your health, is it? Mm -mm. It's really a state of mind about being grateful for what you do have and finding the joy in little things and and having a very accurate viewpoint about life. I don't know if we've we've talked very much about 
the the true nature of life because a lot of us mm. have these expectations that I'll be happy when everything when meets everything. Yeah. those expectations, right? When when I and have yeah. everything I want and I'm healthy and when it looks like this, then I'm happy. But the reality is it's never going to look like that. It's never like going to happen that. that way. So let's do this. Let's take a break and come back. Will you teach us the true nature, nature of life? life. Yeah. This is a big question. And then once we know the true nature of life, that'll help us get more unstuck. It'll change our paradigm about everything else. Holy cow. Fun stuff. Folks, pull over. Get your pen out. Get a paper. Kim Giles is going to come back with the true meaning of life, I guess. Is that what you call it? The nature of life. The nature of life. Yeah. Interesting stuff. More with Kim Giles from ClarityPointCoaching.com right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Kim Giles is in the house from ClarityPointCoaching.com. Again, the author of Choosing Clarity, simple system that makes you feel better about yourself and your life. It's a great book to help you through the path to fearlessness. And maybe we'll even unlock some of your uh, thinking, some of the, the rules you've set subconsciously through your life or have been set for you that might be keeping you stuck. You are going to teach us the nature of life. Yeah, so I learned a lot of this um, in the last year. I've been studying more of the teachings of Buddha for fun. Yeah, yeah, a little and fun Buddha time. One of the things I've loved, Buddha says, life is suffering, right? Oh, yeah. And and his whole goal was to teach people how to suffer less. And he says all our suffering has come because we get attached to these expectations and so we have cravings for these things we wish we had that yeah. we don't have in our life. And then we have aversion towards all the things we have we wish we didn't have. <laughs> and those so two things, those cravings and aversions to all the ways our life isn't right are what make us suffer. Interesting. But the thing is, in, in every moment, besides a handful of those, you also have a lot of things you're so grateful you do have. And things you're really grateful you don't have. Yeah. You know, I'm, it could be worse. It could, could be, be worse. It could be cancer. It could right. be blindness. And and we have all four of those categories in our life at every moment. And so our happiness in every moment is all about what you're gonna focus on. Oh, that's yeah. Are you gonna see that this is this is the way life is? This this is the nature of it. This it's, is how it's working. It's I'm never gonna have everything in place so I can just really be fully happy. Yeah. If you can't be happy now, you won't ever be able to. And so we kind of have to practice looking at life a different way. Now, you know I talk a lot about life being a classroom, right. not a test. And that's one of the huge paradigm shifts I teach my clients because most of us have subconsciously grown up with this idea that life is a test and your value is on the line every day. Right. Every day is another chance to fail. A, B, C, D, or F. What are you going to get? Yep. God only wants A's. And and really, even in our own performance, just with our marriage, we feel like, how are we doing? Are yeah, we, we right. going to see in a D right. at that? Yeah. So I'm failing. I feel like we have fear of failure all the time, all day, every day. It's We're performance, afraid. isn't it? It's so much performance. It is. It's, it's all about your dance. 
So it could totally change your paradigm if you just choose to see life as a classroom, not a test. Now, what's the difference? Well, learning versus uh, what you're measured on. Yeah, you're in a test. If you make a mistake, it affects your grade. Yeah, it affects your value. You are diminished by that mistake. In a classroom. Mistakes are part of the learning process, right? The teacher might put a problem on the board and have you try to solve it. But if you get it wrong, you just erase it and try again. And it doesn't affect your grade. It was a lesson. And the lesson you take with you no matter what. So it's additive. All of your learning is always making you better. So how about if you saw this whole universe as a giant classroom that is literally conspiring to serve your education every day? Mm. And that would mean that all those irritating things that happen, like getting stuck in traffic and you're late for a meeting and you you could be bent out of shape and miserable and suffer and just drive yourself crazy in the car today. Yeah. Or you can say – Interesting. I wonder why the universe has given me this perfect lesson today. I get to practice patience and being happy even when you're late and your expectations That's aren't right. made. So yeah. what what could I do? I could turn on some fun music. I you know could enjoy some peace and quiet by myself time instead of being upset. But if I see everything life gives me as a perfect lesson for today, you just suffer so much less. Well, and it's it's about what can I learn from this moment instead of am I getting it? Am I there? Am I right? Am I wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? I mean, even being unstuck, that would unstick us simply because you're – are you learning? Because if you're learning, you're unstuck. Absolutely. You're just not hung up on the outcome. You're just – but you're progressing. You're learning. Yeah. See how that so is. So I – I teach a little procedure when you're stuck in an emotion. Like in the car, you might be stuck with frustration. Honk. Um, Move it. I don't know. A couple months ago, I got pulled over. You did? I kind of rolled through a stop sign. Kind Hold on. I thought I stopped. You did what they call a slight tap on the pedal. Yes. And the cop said you didn't stop. I I swear I stopped. Well, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't – I guess it wasn't a three-second. Very subjective. And you know what, Matt? I got mad. I sat in the car and I was so mad. And the cop was so rude about it. Yeah, what a jerk. That I just was fuming. Did you get his badge number? Ugh, I didn't. <laughs> but I, I kept wanting to say it something mad. mean about his attitude. But I didn't. And your mother. But I was mad. See? So where did that come from? All of us have moments where we've just got this emotion and we yeah. get stuck in it. What do we do? Well, they used to say, don't suppress it and stuff your emotion because that'll make you sick. So you should express how you feel. But but in reality, a lot of emotion, if you express it, you really give more power to yeah, it. Yeah. You make it bigger. Especially if you're expressing it to someone else. Spread it around to yeah. them and make them frustrated and angry with me. You could have been tased. Seriously. It would you be better so don't if you don't express it. it. That's right. Especially to the cop. But you don't want to suppress it. So how about instead you process it? Uh-huh. So I kind of teach you sit there for a minute and you really feel it. Let it in. Let it in there. Just get it out in your feelings. Yeah. I sat there and I'm like, wow, this much anger is crazy. I can't believe I'm feeling this bad. What's this about? And what could this moment teach me? What could I learn from this anger experience? Love that. And one of the things that came to me that day, I'd been watching all the – 
anger on the news that you know a lot of African American people are feeling towards the cops. That's right. Yeah. And I realized here this this is a similar experience because the cop got mad at me, but you know what? I was guilty. You well, pat- my allegedly. Right. <laughs> right. I allegedly ran that stop right. sign. I knew it was my bad behavior that got me in trouble, but still I was angry at him for so calling true. me on my bad behavior. And it gave me this moment of interesting empathy. I thought, you know, if I if I was pulled over more often because of the color of my skin, I'd be angry too. This would make – yeah. I'd be this angry a lot. Well, and then you'd also relate to all of these other people that have been having it happen. Yeah, and you know I've got an African-American yeah. daughter. So this was a big deal to me to kind of get a glimpse of what they're going the empathy through. of what they're feeling. So I thought even this emotion could be teaching me something really cool. Well, and, inter- and then you share it and you write articles on it. So maybe – but you could have just been mad and hated cops even though you had rolled through a stop sign allegedly. Yeah. That was one option. I yeah. could have processed it that but way. But maybe that's what keeps us stuck then, right, is just not processing it, not allowing the emotion to be felt, not exploring what it's teaching you, not finding an answer for what it's teaching us. Yeah, cool. I th- I think we need to process more. And I do have a little uh, giveaway article yeah. on my website. If people want to get my process for processing emotions, yep. this, the questions to ask. This is at ClarityPointCoaching.com. On the resources page. Okay. Go to resources and look for what's the name of the article. There's an ebook on processing emotion. I see it. The new ebook on processing emotion. Free, by the way. Yeah, everything's free on there. So they should go Again, check it out for sure. The greatest charity on earth, Kim Giles. <laughs> My website. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. <laughs> Kim, you're the best. Go to Clarity Point Coaching, look underneath the resources tab, free ebook, the new ebook on processing emotions. Good stuff. Appreciate you helping us. This, this helped a lot, actually. I'm going to go process. And then I'm going to ask that question What is life teaching me here? And don't choose to be in a negative place because it's serving you on some level. Make sure you ask yourself, is there a benefit to this? Choose your way out. Kim Giles, appreciate you. Uh, We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll come right back to BYU Sports Nation. Spencer and Jerem will be joining us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Wrapping up this final hour of the show. Uh, again, remember, this is the uh, the program where we try to give you and your family the tools that you need to make it through life. Again, life's not an easy thing anyway. And yet, when it comes right down to it, if we just had more education, more uh, more information, Maybe we could start to create the changes we need to create. So on the show, you know, we've had a a pretty interesting show, right? We've talked about politics with Joe Cannon, what's going on uh, in Washington, D.C. with our leadership, uh, the whole, you know, kind of standoff between the the Iranian um, negotiations that are going on with the White House and some other uh, major, major players, and also the letter that was written from the senators, 47 senators, basically directly to uh, the leaders in Iran, in a way, 
kind of undermining the president and his work. Also, we talked about uh, the impact, the impact of advising and giving people advice, and how we we probably need to watch out for how carefully we just throw out our advice to somebody. Maybe we'd have a more healing life if we simply um, would advise a lot less and maybe listen a little bit more. The healing might simply come not because we're giving brilliant wisdom per se, but maybe the healing comes because we allow other people to process through what they're thinking, what they are feeling. Anyway, powerful tools. And then we just talked to Kim Giles about the idea of uh, how to get unstuck. And maybe one of the most powerful ways we can begin to get unstuck is simply by recognizing is are we benefiting in any way, shape or form by being in that situation? Whatever we're complaining about, does it somehow serve us? Have somehow we have we grown up believing that, you know, being just so willing to give everything that everybody walks on you is somehow a benefit? Were you raised with that idea that, you know, the most exhausted one, the most worn out, beat down, emotionally exhausted person is the most valuable one? Did you ever learn that? Anyway, that's a powerful idea. And also the idea of just processing our emotions don't just stuff them. Don't just get rid of them. At some point, too, we need to learn to process and no, to get you, over that. You bury them down deep. Yeah, no, no. You don't address them. No. You, uh, did you miss the whole thing? What? You don't bury them. No, I'm just talking about what society's taught me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 We don't bury our feelings here. If I'm going to fulfill the gender stereotype of being a man, you just... <laughs> I have to bury my feelings. I cannot show any sort of emotion. I need to be strong at you, all times. But see, isn't that an interesting script? Because we do. We believe men just are strong. And we we always kind of gender stereotype. Women are just erratic and emotional. Yeah, not true. A guy will like try to discuss emotions, and we're like, "What are you doing? What's his deal? Knock it off, man. He's not right. Something's wrong with that guy. You're not doing this right. What's going? You know? And yeah, you, you question whether well, there's something wrong with that guy. He's messed up. He needs to go through some recalibration or something. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> Why is he so off? He's actually communicating about an emotion. I, in my office, I see all the time, you know, the gender kind of differences where – but so you may be you. Do you like to share or do you like to stuff? I call them pursuers, withdrawers. Oh, pursuers are those that want to talk. Yeah. Withdrawers want to run. I withdraw. 70% of the time, the research shows statistically, 70% of the time, men tend to be the withdrawer. 70% of the time, women tend to be the pursuer. Like I've never – I have never shed a tear in front of my wife. Haven't you? No. Oh, we need to get together. You need to just watch The Notebook. No. <laughs> That's the other thing. No, we don't watch that stuff either. <laughs> she well, goes, it's a romantic comedy. I go, oh, you lost me before you started speaking. That's interesting. But you're, you're not like intentionally not per se. I mean, yours is just, if there was a moment where you needed to shed the tear, you just kind of- I'm just naturally tough, I guess. Clean the garage. Yeah. I'll go outside and- <laughs> There will be a moment done. where a, a tear will be shed in front of each other. It just seems like life will inevitably hand you one of those. In the last 12 years? No. <laughs> so, so you're actively dodging my, it then. My really. child was born. I went, oh, this is cool. There, yeah, it's great. Look at my child. Did you not emote when your child was born? Yeah, that was it. I said, this is pretty cool. Look wow. at my kid right here. <laughs> is that what you did? Yeah. Did she look at you like... Are you a machine? No, she was over there in great deals of pain dealing with her issues, yeah. and I walked across the room because I didn't want to deal with what was going on there, and I had my boy. I was happy. Interesting. I don't show it's... sadness, though. I get I get angry. Yeah, yeah. 
So yours just turns into an emotion of anger. I go I go in a in a different area and figure out a way to deal with the anger, whether it's you know punch a pillow or yeah. do something. I need you, to get a punching bag. No, though. don't because oh, wait. some of the research on that shows. <laughs> It doesn't necessarily. I mean, I, some shows it actually is cathartic. It gets it out, but it still doesn't. You're not dealing with it. You're not dealing with. You're it. just dealing with the the emotion, the emotion right there, but you're not dealing with the. And if you could problem. tie it to the the topic, then you could actually maybe get rid of the topic. Yeah, but that would be healthy. Yeah, and it would which, resolve the issue. Other which you're than you're not just, striving for that. No, no. Just want to get on to the next moment. Yeah, but see. Isn't that eventually that's the form of – that's what Aldo talked about in our first block or second block is just uh, – our second hour is the ability to just create a safe space. So maybe it's that you don't feel safe to share the emotion because okay. I'm, I mean, I'm sure your wife is, would make it safe for yeah. you. No, but I, I, but in, yeah. psychologically – Well, I don't feel comfortable at all. Yeah. Any emotion – We when I was in the eighth grade, yeah. I had a friend die. Oh no! He had an accident. And he died. They uh, one of the one of my friends, bunch of us were friends, and one of the other moms got all th- got three of us together to go talk to a counselor. Yeah, that was the most unproductive three days of my life. We went three, all, three all, times. We went three. T- I think it was three times. But the three of us sat there, and eventually we were like, "Well, yeah, he was nice. You know, we play soccer, and it cool. yeah, it was great. Yeah. That guy could kick, but." Getting to like real emotion and dealing yeah. with things, they could. The, the other mom saw her son having some issues, uh-huh. but they yeah. wanted maybe if they had some friends around, but nobody wanted to talk. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Nobody wanted to share. That's that safe stuff that Aldo Chivico was talking about. And yeah, it, but it's you can't force safe either. You, you eventually, know. the counselor said, "If you know, this obviously isn't working, so right. if you have any any need to talk to me, I'm always available." And they send us back to class. You know what I found was, was really awkward. powerful with stuff like that is instead of having the boy or the child come in, I I'd rather have the parents come in and teach them how to talk to the how child. to talk to the child and make it safe. Yeah, because to me, having skilled parents could create the same therapeutic effect. The other side, I got called out of class for that. Had no idea not, what I was walking bad. into. That's not bad. No, so it was kind of a surprise. Like, oh wait, we have to talk about yeah. emotions. What you know? And that's. Did you say? Oh, if only. I mean, if I had chocolate or something, I I could share a lot better. <laughs> no, but it was it was uh, the first time I had to run into what is masculinity. Uh, interesting. And you yeah. have that sort of conflict. And that facade that you're supposed to be real big boys don't cry. Yet. And especially in front of my friends. Mm-hmm. You yeah. have to put up this sort of image of See, who you death are. death does that, doesn't it? Death yeah. takes you right to that door where you have to face it. And so coming back to my marriage, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, I got mad at something. And I'll like, I'll, if I'm driving, I'll punch the steering wheel. Oh, yeah. That's not healthy. No. And it kind of hurts your hand. Yeah. But- that and the horn been, went off. Or I, I chucked a, a whole container of sour cream across the room. Okay, we're going to have to work on this. <laughs> Man, this is a side of Terry I haven't seen. I cleaned it up, but you know. Sheesh. Okay, James, write this down. We're going to have to, to deal with this on another show. Okay. Folks, that's the show. We've got Terry going now. Uh, hopefully you got some more tools, more ideas. Again, tomorrow, another three hours of learning, of insight right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. Take care and make it a great day. 